welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, the Editor-in-Chief, and I'm talking today about the May 19th issue of CMAJ. And I will be going through the commentary, the research and the review section of the journal, giving a brief summary of each. We have two commentaries. The first is about advancing social media in medical education, written by uh, Wendy Davis, Kendall Ho and Jason Last. And their key points are that with rapid grassroots adoption of social media by medical trainees and teachers, medical schools need to account for and incorporate social media within their curricula. Secondly, the use of social media holds great value as a teaching and learning tool in medical education by including students in the creation of their own knowledge and by facilitating engagement, self-reflection and active learning. And their third main point is that proactive policies and training can effectively mitigate the risks and challenges associated with the use of social media in medical education. Our second commentary is on a familiar topic, that of tobacco control. And the context of this is the World Health Organization's framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And the commentary is written by uh, Sir George Alain and Prabhat Jha. Their key points are that prolonged smoking results in the loss of one decade of life, but quitting by the age of 40, preferably earlier, avoids 90% of this excess risk. Surprisingly, every metric tonne of tobacco produces one million cigarettes and causes one death. And as worldwide, six trillion cigarettes are consumed, suggests there are about six million deaths each year from tobacco. In order to control this, it's suggested that a tripling of excise taxes in most countries is the only way to plausibly reduce consumption by 30%, which is uh, what is recommended by the World Health Organization. Countering the strategies of tobacco industry, could enable higher taxes and stronger tobacco control in the next decade, saving these millions of lives. The last point is that the WHO's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is now a decade old, is an important global treaty which now needs effective implementation in the next decade to make meaningful reductions in the consumption of tobacco. We have two pieces of research in the journal this issue. Uh, one is a randomised control trial and the other is a diagnostic test validation study. So the first one uh, tackles that uh, important topic of placing an intravenous cannula into children and is uh, testing whether ultrasound or near-infrared vascular imaging makes a difference and makes it easier to perform this. This research comes out of the University of Alberta with Sarah Curtis as the lead author. They enrolled 418 children in the paediatric emergency department who required peripheral intravenous cannulation and stratified by age and randomised them to three different methods of intravenous cannulation. One group, of course, was the control group who had the uh, normal procedure. The other two comparison groups used either near-infrared vascular imaging or ultrasound to locate the vein. Now, the results were that the rate of a successful first attempt did not differ significantly between either of the two intervention groups and the standard approach. 
those confidence intervals were sufficiently narrow to suggest that there was no important difference. The difference in proportions being 3.9%, varying between minus 14.2% and plus 6.5% for the ultrasound imaging, and a similar range for the near-infrared imaging. So, not surprisingly, they conclude that neither technology improved first attempt success rates in children, even in the younger groups, and they suggest that these findings do not support investment in these technologies for routine peripheral intravenous catheterization in children. Our second piece of research is much more relevant to uh, an older population and is looking at uh, the use of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T to safely rule out or diagnose myocardial infarction. And of course this is used in routine practice, but the point of this paper from Germany was to see whether a decision could be reached within one hour of presentation to the emergency department. This author group, which has Christian Müller as the lead author, has published in the past a a diagnostic algorithm which they said had high sensitivity and specificity for the use of cardiac troponin T at one hour. This paper in CMAJ is taking that uh, rule and applying it prospectively to see whether the rule actually works in practice in a prospective study. And they enrolled 1,320 patients presenting to the emergency department uh, with a possible diagnosis of myocardial infarction. They used high-sensitivity troponin T at one hour, and for the final diagnosis, they adjudicated by two independent cardiologists using all the available information throughout the clinical stay in the department, however long that was. But that could have included coronary angiography, echocardiography, and follow-up ECGs and serial measurements of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T. The results are presented in the uh, rule-in and rule-out categories of myocardial infarction. And uh, the rule-out category had a sensitivity of 99.6% with an extremely high negative predictive value of 99.9%, suggesting that uh, one-hour high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T can successfully be used to identify patients who are at low risk of myocardial infarction. At the other end of the scale, the rule-in part of the algorithm had a specificity of 95.7% and a positive predictive value of 78.2%, suggesting that it's possible to be fairly sure in this high-risk group that the patient has had a myocardial infarction. There was, of course, the um, intermediate group where they were unable to either rule-in or rule out myocardial infarction. But this only accounted for 24% of um, cases. So in 75% of cases, this rule can effectively identify high-risk and low-risk patients, which we thought uh, was quite a useful addition. Our review in this issue of the journal is written by Sharon Strauss, one of the associate editors of CMAJ, along with her team, and the lead author is Dr. Wang. And the topic is that of elder abuse, how to uh, identify, assess, and intervene. This has proved to be a very popular podcast, 
which can be listened to on our podcast site. But the uh, key points from this review are that elder abuse is common, affecting maybe 5 or 10% of older adults. There's insufficient evidence to recommend screening of all older people for elder abuse, and insufficient evidence to recommend any one intervention. However, physicians still need to address this relatively common health issue, and an advocacy approach for suspected elder abuse is recommended. Their last key point is that following an assessment of capacity, physicians should educate the patient about elder abuse and direct him or her to local resources including home care and respite agencies, legal services, shelters and government supported elder abuse and police services. So that concludes our summary of what's in uh, this issue of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. As usual we have an editorial on health professionalism uh, this time online and offline. There's uh, also the usual mix of news and practice articles covering a 37-year-old man with numbness in the hand, an incarcerated ovarian inguinal hernia in a 10-month-old girl, and five things to know about nipple discharge and a clinical image of measles, coplic spots. I'm John Fletcher. Thank you for listening.